Okay, so the end of our shows suck. Most professionals like have a way to end it, and yeah. we just taper off in lameness. We, I, I mean, that's your opinion, man. So I think what we should do is at the end of every recorded radio, one of us says, so that's it. And then the other says, we'll see you next week. And then the other goes, maybe, because we've been pretty <laughs> rubbish at doing this regularly. Maybe. I'm Ace Callwood. And I'm Scott Wayne. This is Envoy Recorded Radio. Three. Our openings are pretty shit, too, for what it's worth. <laughs> hey, word of the day is everyone. Have you heard of the phrase everyone? That's not a thing. It's, it's 17th century for always. We do this everyone. It's staying. I love that word. Oh, so similarly, and look, I don't know if this is factual. I'm going to own that, but it's funny if it is. Um, goodbye came from like 17th century shorthand. Somebody oh, wrote to sign off a letter, God be with ye, but they wrote it, God, the letter B, a W, ye. And it was just that shortened to, and we became, yeah, goodbye. So we... The, yeah, that it was just, word is used. It was teenage text speak in the like 1600s. Medievalness that got us to goodbye. That's great. Uh, Look, again, I talk about saying goodbye. Um, uh, SpaceX said goodbye to Starship last yeah. week, very dramatically. Actually, a few days ago. Very dramatic. Um, the photographs of so it was, it was fascinating on a couple of levels. First off, the headlines that said Starship SpaceX rocket. Mm -hmm. explodes yep. was completely misleading because it was intended for it to explode. It was never intended. They it hoped it would go to orbit, but they had, they'd built a system. So it didn't explode. It was triggered to explode by huh. the ground crews. So the news coverage of it was inappropriate. But then Musk himself, and I must say I talk about Musk a lot, considering that I say we shouldn't talk about him, had said that the goal was to actually do a liftoff that didn't damage the landing pad. But oh my God, did it damage the landing pad? The photographs that we'll put on the site I'm of these at them now. dented. <laughs> yeah, this thing just blew. So the concrete base and was throwing shrapnel for like a mile away from the base. This is the most powerful rocket ever launched. Um, and most of the cameras that were placed to film it to show how the landing pad maintained were destroyed in the shrapnel that was blown apart. So I'd, I'd imagine you're going to post these pictures and I'm just I'm struck by the Nike hat. Sitting there, if that's not a just do it, just, just do launch it, just launch it. Ahead. So yeah. the the relevant, I wondered if there was a theory for this, Mister Innovation, huh. because uh, there is a, two very different approaches around this. NASA is very much control, 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 safety, safety, safety. It cannot fail. Whereas SpaceX very openly is try it and fail, try it and fail, and do it publicly. So almost all of SpaceX's successes have been um, precursored by a very public failure, whether it's the self-landing ro rockets or the first Falcon rockets and now, and now Starship. Does that matter? Is there a theory that covers this? Uh, there, what there, would Torsten uh, Venblant say? The, Torsten Van Rocketstein, I think, on this one. Uh, yeah, no, there's... So the... There's the startup theory, which is move fast and break things. Yeah. And that's like it's in a cultural ethos. And that is not rooted in psychology necessarily. It's not rooted in an academic theory. It's more of a, a modus operandi, if you will. It's let's go very quickly. And if things get broken, we can get to fixing them faster. I actually I, I kind of dig that. We've seen it not play out well given the 
I think, toxic culture of technology and that that corner of the world. But I think there's this really interesting uh, lesson that we take away from move fast and break things. And I'm struck by the Delta thing that I'm sure we'll talk about. Maybe this let's is, talk about it yeah, let's, so we, we were in Detroit this week. Uh, we did not leave the airport. They kept us captive. I felt like Tom Hanks and whatever that movie was terminal. Um, but we stayed at the hotel and we just got to kind of play in the in the airport. And what I saw was that uh, parallel reality Delta's calling it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this kind of Roman archway. We've talked about it. And I, I don't know. We'll cite the episode. We talked about it. Um, but it's this kind of Roman looking archway. And then you walk up to an overhead screen, um, up a massive screen in the terminal. And it's uh, augmented reality. So based on your phone's location, only you can see hello for me it was hello austin uh thanks for being diamond medallion and it gave me my gate number and the information i needed and for what it's worth it was trash (laughs) when we tried to use it it was awful um and then it was cool when we finally got it to work but we had gone through what four or five iterations trying to get to work yeah but i think i think the first time it didn't work was a user error on our part because we had invalid passes but in order to make this little star trek magic thing work Mm -hmm. Which the end outcome was impressive because you could see, looking at the same billboard, you could see your details but not mine and I could see mine and not yours until we did that little dance back and forth chasing each other around the airport where we could stand in the same position. But the... But the... my, My challenge with it was you had to show your boarding pass to get the information up on that screen Mm -hmm. that is the information that's on your boarding pass. But I guess you're going to say this is not the end outcome of that technology. It's not. It'll be facial recognition or something that does it. It's not. And, and yeah, the, the goal is to get a thing out so the market can react to it. Right? If a market dictates whether a product or service is valuable, it's in our best interest to get that product into the hands of the market so they can tell us what part is valuable and what's not. It's where the thesis of a minimum viable product comes from. Get the least... Uh, cumbersome, most valuable nugget of a product into somebody's hands so they can give you feedback. So similarly, I think Delta did this. It was, uh, screw it, let's get it out there. It's not going to be perfect. It's going to be a little clunky, but I can see the long-term implications actually moving us away from paper if they have these things posted everywhere through the airport. So based on where I am, I get my info as a heads-up display pretty regularly. I think similarly, I, I would expect that SpaceX is moving this way. Hey, we need to test a thing. Let's get it up. Let's get it out. And if we burn some money doing that, it will off. That money burnt will be offset by the value we've created by just getting the thing launched. I understand it. So I'm going to move from innovation to behavioral economics here a little bit. Mm -hmm. So there was the tunnel that you had to walk through. You walked through this tunnel and then you went to this booth where you scanned your boarding pass and then it came up on the screen. Yeah. But you could have accessed the place you scanned without walking through the tunnel, but everybody's walking through the tunnel. And I wonder if the tunnel, you know, we talked about this, does it serve any purpose or not? And it may, but I now regret when we were there yesterday that we didn't just pull out a blanket and tell everybody once they went through the tunnel, you had to roll over the blanket before you got to the thing. (laughs) See if people will just do it because you tell them that you're doing it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, that was yesterday, which in 17th century language, it was yesterday evening, would be yesterim. Yes, yesterim is yesterday evening. <laughs> We're speaking 17th century, all, all for today's episode. Can I uh, one one thing before we move yeah. on from kind of innovation and behavioral economics? There's a um, there's a, a 
term in psychology called locomotion, and it's the idea that uh, it's basically the Nike hat we saw, just do it, yep. um, versus assessment. And you'll see cultures kind of orient to one or the other. That locomotion culture would say, let's go do a thing, get it out there. In the past, it's been kind of anchored to the idea of unethical decision-making. We're finding in the science at least is getting to a place where it's not ethical or unethical. There's no value judgment. It's just some cultures are oriented to going to do the thing and then tweaking and honing after. And some are uh, more rooted in let's study and let's build goals based on uh, a kind of timeline that's been charted out very intentionally. And so again, no value judgment yet, but that idea of one versus the other being better or worse is not true. It's just to know what culture you're in the midst of. And if you're one who assesses highly and you're in a locomotion culture, that's going to be wildly uncomfortable. So I think the tech community orients more to move fast and break things and the NASA's of the world don't. I think there's probably a good balance between a SpaceX and a NASA, and we know both of them. So that's pretty cool. There's your theory that I said I didn't have. All right, jump here. Perry, I've noticed on professional podcasts that they have um, little, like, what do they call them, stings between sections? Yeah. If we were any good, we'd have those too, and there'd be one right here. <laughs> on that theme of the shit that I just gave Perry, Yep. I want to talk about whether we are um, what's technically known from a management perspective as bastards. Mm, so yeah, I want to talk about, term. I want to talk about, this is really therapy, how I struggle with servant leadership. So okay. I've looked at servant leadership. And you just looked up the definition. Looked it up. Okay. So, so to make sure I'm getting it right. The leadership okay. philosophy in which the goal of the leader is to serve is different from a traditional leadership where the leader's main focus is the thriving of their company or organization. A servant leader shares power, puts the needs of employees first, and helps people develop and perform as highly as possible. Now, first of all, I want to say I recognize this is a widely followed philosophy, and there are companies that pride themselves on this sort of employee-first type mentality and this servant leadership piece. I also want to say I've struggled with this for years, mm. and anybody who is a former employee of mine... <laughs> It's like, oh my God, has he struggled with this? And I was reminded of it when I was in Target over the weekend and a former employee saw me across the way and ducked down an aisle so she didn't have to deal with me. <laughs> uh, because there are only two types of people in Scott Wayne's life, people who like him greatly and people who dislike him greatly. That's now, sure. that's not the case with most former employees. Most former employees go on great. Um, but the... This... I So it, it's it's remained in vogue for a long time mm -hmm. this idea of, of you of your supportive of it i i can't overcome my sort of inherent belief that as a leader it's sort of cheating the servant leadership yes yeah. in that it is putting what, what part feels like cheating it feels like you are putting responsibility for judgment at a rank that frankly isn't remunerated for that. And I say remunerated rather than paid because there are all sorts of other vestiges of office that goes with rank. That we are that we're frankly over empowering. Mm. That that we we've empower, empowerment is out of control. And that the the idea that and it also runs counter the other place I struggle with it. I get it. I get the idea like if you put your employees first, their employees are going to do the best work. Your employees are going to be nurtured. And they are then going to seek to serve others, including clients and other things. 
But one of the places I struggle with it is that how does one prioritize mm -hmm. is one area because by definition, the larger the range of scope that you have, the better you are to context what's important and what's not important. And sometimes they're small things that may not seem important to other people. Um, and then just that overall responsibility. I, I feel that servant leadership as a mindset projects onto every employee that they too want to be leaders. And I don't think that's necessarily, in my experience, that's not true. Yeah. I think we've discounted the value of being a follower and an executor. Here endeth my rant. <laughs> no, I, well, how real do we want to get on this one? I, th I, I, I think... We're going to get lots of commentary on this, both I would, I would positive imagine, and negative. Right, rightfully so. It's not, it's not for everyone. I, to your point, I've seen the zeitgeist kind of shift to servant leadership so much that I just... I pulled up, I Googled, the opposite of servant leadership. <laughs> and this feels so in line with how people see that. I think to your the distinction you just made, servant yeah. leader building and kind of running an organization alongside and empowering folks versus um, the leader who looks out for the organization as their sole goal. This, uh, this thing that I looked up says an autocratic leader is one who looks out for themselves primarily. That's the opposite of the servant leadership model. To be an effective leader, it's important to develop your selflessness. I'm like, this is a snippet from some BS site, and it's, of course, uh, the, the ad, but just the idea that that is the first thing one would orient to if they're like, what's the opposite of a servant leader? Maybe I don't fully believe in this. What am I looking for? And it's like, whatever you're looking for is bad. That's what I've taken yeah. away from this query. Yes, because the default is right. servant leadership has been like the default style of leadership. If we yep. were to go to any HR conference, which we're supposed to be speaking at one in a few weeks, which after this... They may ask us uninvited. not to speak. Yeah. Is, yeah, it's become like the, this is just what one does. Yeah, yeah. So I I think we, you and I have different philosophies on um, how we nurture people. And I, I'm not even sure I'm using the word nurture, right? <laughs> I'm not sure I understand what that word means. Um, Perry has his head in his hands right now. Yeah, it's like, what are you two doing? Uh, yeah, no, the... The idea of how we in, interact and engage, I, for for instance, I think you look at the potential of a hire. Like we've talked, we've talked about this a bit. You look at the potential, and it's like that person could be great, not necessarily a leader, just really yeah. great in what they do. And I think I, I skew a little bit more toward the kinetic um, of an individual as we think about a hire. Like, where are they great now, and is that valuable to our firm? Right. And I think that that is intention, <laughs> given the two of us uh, leading this firm um, and Stinson telling us to go do our thing. Right. Uh, I find that to be intention and also the way that we both lead, irrespective of the type of talent we look for, is very much not servant-oriented. And I think that's really hard, particularly for you as you look at potential. Because like those two things seem like they're in contrast a bit. I'm, yeah, I'm, well, ex yeah. I'm exploring no, this. Yeah. Like, you could be great. Also, I, I don't want to empower you, but I think that's how people grow. I think that's that's my theory. People grow by having somebody alongside them, kind of. So I don't think the philosophies are, are that far off, but I I do think there is a dramatic shift in. So okay, so part of what I think is servant leadership is this constant coaching. Yeah, which I get. Yeah, 
But I, I don't have a lot of tolerance for repeat coaching around the same or similar things. Mm-hmm. And I tend to jump from like being really relaxed about it mm-hmm. to being very not relaxed about it. Yeah. And so, look, Perry producing a podcast, it's recorded radio, sorry, is the, he'd never done this before. Yeah. Um, I was like, you, you can work, you can do this, Perry. You've got this. And we've made some mistakes along the way, mainly mine of not hitting record buttons and things. But my tolerance for Perry to make a first mistake at anything is high. My tolerance for Perry, now, this is where I think I'm off. Most people's tolerance for Perry making that mistake a second time is a little bit less than the first time. Mm-hmm. Mine is like off the charts, it non-existent. Off. <laughs> it's a cliff. off a cliff. Between first and second, there is like, a cliff. So my tolerance for not learning from the mistake is mm. basically zero. Mm-hmm. And I think that comes as a psychological shock to people. I'm, real, I'm realizing this about me is that, and so I do... Yeah, I do. I do hire around potential. The other thing that I do that used to in my last firm sent my business partners <laughs> stratospheric because it breaks all of best practices. But I, I still struggle with this is that to say to somebody, I know you can do better work than this. Hmm. And my my partners would be like, where's the evidence? Where's the pathway? Where's the coaching? And I was always like, but they're high potential. They'll find it like that this isn't for me it isn't a criticism it really isn't a criticism yeah. like is i know i believe you have this in you i know i feel it you have it in you that you can do better work than this you are not you're not there yet and i so yeah and that apparently isn't best, <laughs> best practice at all I, I, I realize as I, I framed kind of my observation of potential kinetic and uh, lack of servant leadership i i positioned it as I'm doing it right and you're not. And to be clear, I just think I'm also wrong in a different way. <laughs> that's, that's, so, that's, that's how I feel So then here's, here's my question for anybody listening. Is there a difference between what one should do when you ha- run an organization that just needs to do solid work versus you run an organization that has to do top class work, like the very best work? Because we have to do the very best work because we're surrounded by competition who will happily nip away at our feet Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that Rightfully post I did so. that even hinted that we were closing down <laughs> the amount of vultures that were trying to pick off of dead bodies. Um, but the, but then if you work for an organization, I don't know, if you work for a bank yeah. that is a retail bank that it's very sticky, right? People don't move easily, this and the other. Maybe maybe that works really well because you're just, you're guiding this slower institution as it as it works through, but. Yeah, I, I think the downside is we're going to miss some talent that like needs hands-on active coaching, and and that that is real. But I think I'm going to stay with it. I think servant leadership is is borderline abusive. Oh, there's I the headline. Get to my upside. Oh, yet. sorry, go to your upside. <laughs> the downside is we're going to miss some talent. Uh, the the downside is also we are going to drive ourselves insane unless we find a a better way to articulate how we operate. Uh, like that, uh, we, we are going to put our heads through a wall because I'm thinking about the same employee you saw in Target who also ducked down an aisle when I saw them <laughs> in Target. And yeah, that, that says something, but also. I don't like it. No. I don't like it. It, at it all. doesn't feel great. I just feel mean. Yeah. It's, but, but that expectation that here's where I think the difference is the way that our firm is designed is predicated on you and I being out doing great work. It's not 
to build a team of people who can go replace our work. That's that's not the way we function at Envoy, and I don't think that's a thing that we want to be the case, right? Um, and if that's the case, I can't spend time coaching someone internally if my job is to be honing my craft and improving so I can be world-class externally. Like, And I see some organizations where the CEO's job is to just kind of zhuzh the organization and, and continue to grow it. And so, yeah, we're a small team. We don't want to be any larger than we are. This is less in defensive envoy. It's more of a acknowledging where our time is best spent. And I would rather hire really high performers who do get that work done. It's not no mistakes. It's after the first one, I'm making sure that doesn't pop up again. And if it does, like I've got a really good excuse for it, or it's a mea culpa right out of the gate. There is even a way of orienting to the second mistake. Um, I can't afford anything but that for us to continue to go operate in the way we do. And so I, I don't know that I'm putting a value judgment on this. I'm just saying I know who I am and how I operate. And in order for me to do that effectively, I need folks who work the same way, which doesn't mean they need to be leaders, but it is an understanding that they need to be high-octane operators. What's counterintuitive here is I'm more inclined to work alongside one of those per people who's a high-octane operator if they're on my team, even though I'm the leader. Because then it's about being peers of expertise, right? It's that you're an expert in your thing, I'm an expert in my thing, and you don't have to be a leader of teams, but when we're in your domain, you're in charge. And that's a very easy transition to make if I trust the high caliber, high quality of people I get to work alongside. Like, it, yeah, and, and that's where I don't think servant leadership is abusive because you're not servant leadership dragging people up. You're just passing over power when you're in somebody's domain of expertise. So I'm going I'm to stay with it that I think it's abusive and explain why, but then I want to come to mm. your journey because I mm -hmm. think that's quite interesting. So so the, the reason that I think it's unfair, not abusive, is that you are empowering people to be leaders when actually I don't think they have the resources or the authority to back it up. Okay. Yep. And what we are putting on people is a degree of accountability at a level that is above what they signed up for. Hmm. Um, and we're expecting people at the same time, we're, we're not giving the direction that could be successful for you to move on. So I guess I'm struggling with that. Your journey is quite interesting because you used to be much more of, it's not that I don't believe in coaching, by the way. I just don't <laughs> think your boss should be doing the coaching. So we've just rolled out, Roger Parker is a counselor to our firm. He's available to a group of you all, us all to take guidance. We're not yeah. even calling it, calling it coaching. Part of it is like, how do I deal with Scott? But the, in terms of, I think about the, your journey, you used to be much more of a coach. You were much touchy-feelia, like checking with the team. As, as your star has shone brighter and brighter in the marketplace and you're dealing with things where the ramifications of your, of your work have implications for famine, social justice, equity of technology, um, public health, I've noticed your tolerance for failure in the team drop, not insignificantly. Huh? That's there's there's truth to that, yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, I don't think I was as great a coach as you're giving me credit for. Like, I don't think I started in as great a place. Because it's yeah, but but the as the work 
pace increases in the quality of work, then yeah, the, the team expectation across the board, ourselves included, myself included, I won't speak for you, myself included, the expectations ought be high. And so very similarly, when there is failure on the team, my tolerance for that drops pretty quickly if we don't triage, can't apologize, and don't own it. Um, but similarly, I get cranky when I have failed at a thing and people say, that's okay. It's fucking not, right? Like that, that goes both ways. And I think that is very true as well. So I don't need servant leadership, but I do need some expectation that I'm willing to get my hands dirty and do the work. And there are times when my job is to be thinking strategically elsewhere. And I don't need to have the argument about whether I'm willing to get my hands dirty. It's not my fucking job right now. So <clears throat> I think we should take a break from this for a little while. Yeah. We'll come back to it maybe in a few weeks. But also, I, I know there is a cluster of people who will listen to this will be so mortified. And I'm just going to make this request. If you decide to show up to do an intervention and coach me, please just come to the office, not my house. Just <laughs> let my house be the place I can run my dictatorship. Um, let's jump to etiquette and grammar for a while. Um, etiquette. So gift cards, even digital gift cards. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to introduce a little bit of China to Western culture. R red envelopes. Do you know what a red envelope is? I have no China's idea culture. what a red envelope is. So a red envelope is the way you give cash in China. Huh. So at a wedding or a, any, any like major event, um, as you go, you hand over these beautiful, ornate red and gold envelopes, and inside they're stuffed with cash. Yeah. And I just, even in digital, I, I messaged somebody the other day who's been helping out Kate, one of my kids, and I wanted to send, send her a thank you. I was going to get, a, I don't know, a gift card. And then I was like, well, what do you get? Which would be nice, would be cash. And then I found myself asking her for her Venmo account, and she didn't give it. And it's just, anyway, the Chinese red envelopes or digital red envelopes that you can just, don't know, I, get, I guess they're gift cards. But, you know, cash, that gift card you can spend anywhere. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like there's a cultural idea that a gift card or cash is not thoughtful. That it's grubby. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's oh. grubby. More oh. like you just didn't put – we don't actually have a relationship where you could uh, find the thing that I might want and gift it to me. I have a problem with that. I would, I would love cash for what it's worth. I'm just sharing that every time I've done that, it has seemed like, a, oh, I guess – I mean, cash is cool, but you could have put more thought into this. I'm like, no, but this is maybe a really thoughtful way to say, get whatever you want. <laughs> Do whatever yeah. you want yeah. with it. Um, and, and who am I to tell you that you wanted the blue widget versus the red widget unless you've told me? So people have this expectation of a gift, a blind gift out of love rooted in some thoughtfulness without, like, I don't know, cheapening that by telling you exactly what they want. And I think that splits the middle and nobody wins that way. So I, I like the cash idea. I'm violently agreeing with you. Hey, Ashley White. Can you have Haymaker Goods make little envelopes that say something like, this is inside is a gift card for you to buy whatever you want because it's entirely up to you. I just wanted to say thank you and see what that looks like. Oh, okay. I love that. All right. Um, staying on, uh, so this is the etiquette and grammar section. Grammar is provided by Scotty Thomas Scott, who um, <laughs> just rants at us and doesn't, he's guaranteed not to listen to this podcast. The difference between less and fewer. Do you know the difference between less and fewer? We're going to educate people. Le less things and fewer things. Yes. Okay. 
No, I don't. So you, we, use, we should use the word fewer when the things are countable and less when they're uncountable. So less time, fewer hours. Less dignity, fewer friends. That, that was too close to home, I'm sorry. And then two more. Um, can we talk about Americans and sneezing and bless you? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you, so look, are you opposed? Well, we're, we're in allergy season right now. It is. And hay fever, so, you call it. Hey, we do call it hay fever. The, so in the United Kingdom, somebody sneezes, somebody may sort of say a very discreet, like, bless you. Yeah. If one sneezes in America, uh, let's say you're in a crowded room, you're going to have a dozen people yell, bless you. But then if you sneeze again, so mm-hmm. bless you is, if it's done in the UK, it's a one-off. Just mm-hmm. once covers the whole sneezing fit. But here, we say it again and again and again. Yeah. We do, don't we? Yeah, unless you know the person. So, for instance, I have someone very dear to me who sneezes like four or five times in a row. And it's become a game where I just guess where they're going to end. <laughs> and I'm like, and bless you. <laughs> and they, she, sorry, Julie, she hates it. Uh, but I think it's funny. Yeah, it's hard to do. So now I find everyone. that I, I don't, it, I, you end up as a, I, I feel like de Tocqueville should have written about this when he, when he visited America and wrote about, you know, Americans, is that you're sort of trapped. If you say, if you do it as Americans do and just say, bless you after every sneeze, you just feel like this is ridiculous. If, on the other hand, you don't say bless you, you get a dirty look for not saying it. But the worst is if you say bless you once and then not again for the others. But it's allergy season. I could spend I could spend a whole train ride wishing bless you to people. It's yeah. efficiency. People. Maybe it's our desire. It's our over orientation on thoughts and prayers as solutions for everything. We just keep mm, blessing people. No, we're not going there. Yeah. Week. No. Yeah. Uh, last one: snafu versus fubar. Just keep in mind that maybe children listening. You put this on the list. I did. I was hoping you knew the act. <laughs> yeah, I do. Well, I know fubar. Fu- Effed up beyond all repair? All recognition, I think, is FUBAR. Effed up beyond all recognition. Snafu is, it's another military one. Isn't it? It's a... Situation uh, normal, all effed up. There we go, that's <laughs> what I, I was trying to so, so Snafu is below FUBAR. We're on a military base this afternoon. We, we, we need to know. Yeah, we should know. Yeah. So I, I would imagine situation normal. So this is just all a cluster, always, all the time. It's as expected. Yeah. Snafu is, yeah. And FUBAR right. is a temporary thing. Well, it's a I think permanent FUBAR thing is because more it's all. <laughs> it, do you think I think it it's levels. I think you start at a Snafu and it goes up to a FUBAR. Does it go up or down? Now it goes up. No, I mean, think like, about the is it going down, though? Well, because I mean, it's, it's getting, getting worse, worse, but that's better. But it goes I up. I mean, think about the storyline. It's better. <laughs> so, yeah. Huh. Uh, we, we might need some advice on this. Yeah. Snafu versus FUBAR. Um, Where is the rankings of disaster? If there's, you... if there's a certain general tuned in. Um, <laughs> oh, I know exactly it, who you're yeah, thinking Well, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping yeah. he would know. Drop us a note. Yeah. If you're on, Drop let us, us know. Uh, okay. All right. Since we're ranting. This is going to be the rant edition. Oh, God. Listenership was getting too high. We had to suppress it. <laughs> uh, we're also, as we're in hay fever season, allergy season, we're also people in no mo season. No, no mo season. No mo. No mo is not a cool neighborhood of New York. It is a. <laughs> it might be. It could be. Probably is by yeah, now. Probably. No mo is the idea that in springtime, we do not mow our lawns, people. And do you know what we definitely don't do? We don't get a lawn service that puts chemicals on your lawn so it all looks the same. What yeah. we do instead. 
and my kids are going to burst out laughing if they listen to this, is you plant clover. Uh-huh. Clover clover fixes its own nitrogen. It is an amazing plant. Is So you don't need to put pesticide on clover. It actually it self-fertilizes. Hmm. It, it pollinates. It attracts bees. It feeds deer. And it will give you a lovely green lawn. But regardless of what you do, do not mow in the spring. Allow that grass to grow yeah. and allow our pollinators to work because we have a, a bee crisis. And when I say we have a bee crisis, I don't mean selfishly. Don't worry about the bees. Worried about this thing called food, people. Um, and we need to start creating some habitats for for bees to and pollinators in general to exist. If you want to nerd out about this, though, you can start looking at native wildflowers so there's all sorts of websites that just Google it. You'll find something for, for your area of the world. But um, in the fall, put a note to start planting wildflowers that are native to your area. Yeah. And then just, just let your garden be in the spring. And there are two upsides to this. One is you can feel self-satisfied that you're doing something for, for the earth. And the other is you'll upset all of your neighbors who get very uptight about it. <laughs> Actually, not my neighbors. My neighbors are very chill. Um, but well, but neighbors live, in general you live in a crunchy I live in hippie a very crunchy outdoors. <laughs> Let's stick with crunchy hippie outdoors. Wait, I'm not done. I'm not oh, done. You're not, Can we just talk about composting? Oh, we're still just okay. right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, while sure. we're on this, as you make a note for the fall, just a reminder that the can def- you read this verbatim? What the the note that you have on here oh. about compost? Oh, was it just compost fuckers or That's something? That's exactly yes. what it said. Yeah. So the definition of madness mm-hmm. is that in the fall, you. You use a petroleum-powered device, air yep. blower, to pile up leaves, to put them in plastic bags, to have a truck powered by gasoline drive it to a trash can, trash dump, where they will not decompose, and then drive to the hardware store and purchase those very same items that have composted in a plastic bag and drive it back to your house. Yeah. We just don't. Just mow your leaves Put them in a pile, mm-hmm. shred them. They will turn into this. The, yeah, it's just crackers. And I'm I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna get ahead of anybody who's like, well, it's an electric uh, blower. It's still annoying, and it's an electric <laughs> uh, garbage truck. No, it's not. Shut up. That's ridiculous. It's a petrol truck for sure, and it might be, but it still whines and hums and just annoys everyone. When we could leave it, compost. There we go. Uh, hey, can we stay on the outdoors thing? Because yeah. tis the season. People are going to get camping and campfires, etc. Yeah. And I would just implore all of us to stop with the camp cups. <laughs> the camp cups. They're, yeah, what? this is this is a thing I chose. You're like, hey, save the bees, save the world compost. Yeah. I said stop with the camp cups because they burn my knuckles. They're just they're poor. They're poorly designed cups. Oh, they're like, like the classic the camp. camp yeah. yeah, the ceram. They're making them in yeah. ceramic now and metal, and they're these beautiful things. Except when you put the hot liquid that you want in the morning <laughs> while you're camping and it's chilly and it it gets really hot. And then you know what it does? It gets slippery in your muddy, grubby, campy hands. And if that's not what your hands look like when you're camping you're doing it wrong um so it gets slippery and then it rotates because the liquid's heavy in it and it just rests it's hot walls against your knuckles because that's how one holds a cup or you hold it in your hands and then your hands get burnt and yeah they're really impractical even though they're beautiful and if we could just stop or like design them better or give them some grip or something i would love that perry's laughing at me um i said what i said Okay, I think I think the last thing before we we go to a, 
a non-lame close. Yep. Eudaimonia. Do you know what eudaimonia means? I don't. Eudaimonia is the study of uh, interdisciplinary study of human flourishing. Hmm. Have we talked about this before? We have. Not. I don't think we have. No. So you're gonna you're gonna like the name of this guy. Uh, he is. Um, he's an Oxford neuroscience professor named Morton Kringleback. No, he's not. Ah, Professor Kringleback. You take we know your dastardly plan real. to take over the world. <laughs> it's legit. It's legit. And eudaimonia, so the, the Carlsberg, Carlsberg and Petit Foundations has established a center at Lineker College in the University of Oxford. I'm not sure there is a college of Oxford named Lineker. This whole thing might be this made up. This guy's made up, yeah. Um, and so this is a Dane, I believe, who is uh, from... Uh, the Department of Psychiatry um, at the University of Oxford, and they're centering with the Center for Music in the Brain at Aarhus University in Denmark. Aarhus does a bunch of crazy stuff and creativity, mm-hmm. and, and uh, those Danes. And so it's it's they're trying to distinguish between the hedonic, which involves sort of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, and eudaimonic, which has ingredients of well-being, um, while so that they're similar but they're different. So yeah. eudaimonic isn't that you don't have any pain in your life and it's not these huge peaks, but it's like how do you just live a kind of quality, quality life? I like the um the servant the leadership Greek. probably leads <laughs> shit. Uh, the, the the Greek directly translates to good spirit. Yeah. Which is uh, like I think that grounds it in yeah, hedonistic would be uh, and nefarious is the wrong word, but uh, slightly different, uh, nuanced, if you will. Yeah. There's a, there's some nuance. So I so I'm as you know I'm obsessed with flow and get very mm-hmm. irritable at the absence of flow. The have we ever defined I th- flow? I think this is related to it. Um, it's very hard to define it. Yeah. Um, there was a great book by um, a gentleman whose name is unpronounceable, but it's on our reading list. If you go to envoynotes.com, and I think there's a resources tab, and on there there's a reading list, and there's a book by the name of Flow. And I'm not going to, I will butcher the pronunciation of his name. Um, but he does, he, he was sort of one of the original authors that were looking at this idea of non-friction, being in the moment, um, whether you're playing a sport or you're playing a musical instrument or you're just in conversation where it lands in that space. Yeah. And I think there might be a relationship to eudaimonia and this. Um, but, I, but, I, but the thing that made me laugh about this was, so what does, what does Professor Kringleback do all day? I just have this vision of him wandering the dreamy spires of Oxford and people say, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm searching for eudaimonia. Is that a cat? (laughs) 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 Professor Kringleback's cat. You know what's going to, I bet Lucy Taylor knows this guy. He's going to be on, he's going to be on her podcast. Disputing anything that we have to say. Morton Kringleback. Eudaimonia. No, the idea though, I, I love that. Um, yeah, but it's not the meaning of happiness, but to, to be a good spirit, to be settled and grounded and just know what good is and so, the peaks and troughs and you roll So that's that. actually, I'd also like a t-shirt that just says seeking eudaimonia. And then Ace gets to say he's lost his cat. <laughs> All right. I uh, think this is our lament. I've now forgotten how we said we we're going to end it. What do we say? And that's it. We're done. We're done. See you next week. Maybe. <laughs>